Hi, this is Looking Back, a program where I'll be remembering highlights, low points, adventures, and lessons learned over my first 75 years. I'm Robert Harmon, and I'll be looking back fondly at an often unplanned, but mainly interesting life. I hope you'll join me. I've been wanting to write the following story for a while now, but the way in wasn't clear until I started thinking about doorways. One of the things that has enabled Kay and I to have this great married life over the past 30 or so years, almost 40, is that in some key aspects we are quite different from one another. There is a dream image that has presented itself to me on numerous occasions over the years. In it, Kay and I are in this long corridor with lots of doors on either side. Like the floor of a large hotel, only longer. I'd go along the corridor looking at each door, only stopping to enter if one was ajar. Kay, on the other hand, would open every closed door and enter. Kay's curiosity gave her the ability to simply open and enter. I, on the other hand, interpreted a closed door not as an invitation, but as a barrier. Over the years, it's gotten easier to give myself permission to enter these doors, real and metaphorical, that said, I'm now ready to enter the door to this story. By the mid-1990s, I had started selling my custom furniture at craft shows, mainly on the East Coast. After much coaxing and encouragement by various artist friends, I had decided to apply to an American Craft Council show by mailing in five slides of my work. Admission to the shows was always through a jurying process, and from the very start I was lucky and accepted into most of the shows I applied for. The first show I ever did was ACC Baltimore. As I was unloading my van full of furniture, I was slowly awestruck by the stunning beauty and high quality of the ceramics, jewellery, clothing, glasswork and furniture that surrounded me. By the time I had emptied my van, I had become convinced that one of the show organisers would appear and ask me to leave. Here I was surrounded by all this incredible craftwork and I felt like a fraud. These people were obviously real artists and craftspeople. I was just making this stuff up, just playing. That had to be obvious to anyone. Thankfully, no one asked me to leave. I also had to remind myself that the show organizers had put an image of one of my chairs on the front cover of the show brochure. 
Regardless of all that, I still felt like an imposter. Key had come with me as support. We were all set up and ready for the next morning's show opening. And that's when Kay asked me about the prices. When I told her, she immediately doubled the number. I can't ask $4,000 for a chair, I said. Now I began to get nervous. That problem was solved by hanging price tags on the furniture. During the entire first show, I never uttered the price. I couldn't. I simply pointed to the price tags. For me, the price was too outrageous. My inner voice was saying, it's just me making this stuff up and I'm having fun doing it. However, many people would say, these are very reasonable prices. And Kay would look at me in her knowing way. What the hell did I know about value or price? Or as Kay would jokingly say, do you want to pay people to take a chair home? During that first show, a man walked into the booth and silently inspected the chairs and ottomans from a close-up and from a distance. After much quiet appraisal, he turned and said to me, you never went to art school, did you? At that moment, I just wanted to slip between the cracks in the floor. My first show, and I'd been found out for the fake I was. No, I answered. Thank God, he said. They'd have beaten this creativity out of you if you had. That was a scary way to give someone a compliment, I told him. He apologized. Later, I was invited to the Washington, D.C. craft show. This was one of the most prestigious shows in the country. Only a hundred artists from the entire U.S. were invited annually. I couldn't believe my good fortune. While driving on I-270 into D.C., I was getting excited. For many miles along the way, I was surrounded by trees when suddenly this large city devoid of tall skyscrapers appeared. It was a magical moment for me driving into our nation's capital for the first time. I arrived at the show location at the National Building Museum. I couldn't believe it. Here I was going to be spending the next four days in this spectacular columnar space, marble floors, outrageously tall ceilings and filled with natural light. I was so overwhelmed I had to pinch myself. So the wee raggedy arse Scotsman is in one of the buildings where the inauguration balls are held. Is this really happening? I spent the rest of the day preparing my booth space for the next day's show opening. As I was setting up, another artist came over. He was curious about me, saying that he'd never seen me or my work before. He also added that he'd been applying to this show for 19 years and that this was his first acceptance. It didn't go down well when I told him that I'd never applied before. 
He was a surly sort, and my answer hadn't helped. Next morning the show opened, and I arrived early to switch on my lights and make sure everything looked perfect. As I was getting ready, the guy from yesterday walked into my booth with a newspaper in hand and asked how I had done this. I told him I had no idea what he was talking about. This, he said, as he showed me the front page of the home section of that day's Washington Post. On it, a full-page photo of one of my chairs. I know nothing about that or how it happened, I replied. Off he went and I was thankful, thankful for his departure and my good fortune. Kay and Asia had flown into DC for a few days to keep me company and see a little of DC. On the Saturday night, after the show closed for the day, Kay suggested that we have dinner at a nice nearby Mexican restaurant that she and Asia had found. After eight hours of talking to potential clients, I was ready to eat and relax. Not long after we had placed our order, Kay whispered to me, I think that's Attorney General Janet Reno sitting over there. I took a quick look round, and sure enough, it was her. You should go over and give her one of your furniture postcards and invite her to the show tomorrow, whispered Kay. What? said I, alarmed, suddenly aware that this was one of those occasions when the door was most definitely closed. Not just closed, but locked shut. There are moments when I adore Kay and her attitude to closed doors. She's so assuredly American. What the hell? It's me, and I'm going in. And I'm so timidly Scottish. I'm not sure you can do that. Just go over and give her one of your cards, she continued, sounding as if it was the most natural thing in the world to do. After 20 years, I was still learning that she came from a democracy while I came from a country with a monarchy where everyone knew their class and place. And my place was most definitely, most definitely not in the company of the U.S. Attorney General. So I readied myself and got up from my chair, walked over to Janet Reno's table and introduced myself. She was the epitome of the perfect host, all smiley and welcoming. I told her about the show as I removed one of my chair postcards from my inside jacket pocket. Janet lit up, replying that my invitation sounded wonderful and introduced me to her two cousins visiting from Florida. It turned out that they had been discussing how to spend the next day. I then returned to my table, feeling quite pleased with myself. That's when Kay, leaning over the table, quietly said, When you put your hand into your jacket pocket to get out your postcard, I thought that that man over there and that one over there was going to shoot you. They got very agitated. There's three of them. 
all security men. I remember suddenly going from euphoric to shocked in seconds. Thankfully, we finished our dinner without interruption, and I was thankful for that. Kate and Asia flew back home the next morning while I went to the show knowing it would be a shorter day. Sundays are usually from 11 until 5. I didn't think too much about Janet Reno coming to the show. As the Attorney General, I figured she was probably very busy and just being polite last evening. Around 3.30, Janet Reno, her two cousins, plus her spread-out security detail, showed up at my booth. She was all smiles and wanted to know all about me and my accent and my furniture and my creative process. She really was the most interesting and curious person. We sat and visited for about 15 minutes, and I couldn't help but notice that as she held her purse, her hands trembled slightly. It was sad to notice that she probably did have Parkinson's. They liked my furniture, but didn't order any, and that was fine with me. I was just touched and delighted that a busy person like her made the time to do everyday things and show her cousins a good time. Within minutes of her departure, the surly guy reappeared. Again, he was agitated as he asked me, Who are you? How is it my work had appeared in the Washington Post? But most of all, why had Janet Reno spent time only in my booth? He was obviously upset, and got even more so when I said to him, She came because I invited her. Thankfully, he sulked away and took his unhappiness with him. I remember thinking that if you can't be a happy artist, what's the point? I never saw him again. The show closed at five, and by eight, I had blanket-covered my furniture, said my goodbyes to artist friends, and was ready for the drive, knowing that I'd get back home the next afternoon. I always like to drive for a couple of hours before stopping for the night. Any time I was returning from a show in Baltimore, Philadelphia, or in this case D.C., there was a little restaurant near Donegal, Pennsylvania, off I-70, where I liked to stop for breakfast. The food was good, and there was a window where I could look out and enjoy the pond, which was always full of wild birds. After four days in a city like Baltimore, Philadelphia, or D.C., I needed that. It was a dark November evening as I started my drive heading for I-270. Suddenly I realized I had taken a wrong turn and was now in a residential neighborhood. Pretty soon I was lost and disoriented. I came to a stop sign and thought that I probably needed to take a right turn. While starting to turn right, I suddenly realized that the car on my right was not parked and suddenly we collided. I got out of the van to check what had happened. All of a sudden, everything seemed to speed up. The driver of the car said that his car 
had only gotten a scratch and not to worry. However, I was worried because my rear passenger tire was flat, having been slashed by his fender. Suddenly, out of nowhere, two black men appeared asking questions. The driver, also a black man, handed me his business card, stating that he was a professor at Georgetown University. Within seconds, he was back in his car, reversed and took off. That was fast, I thought. Was this a safe neighborhood, I wondered. My thoughts were interrupted as the older man asked if I needed help with my tire. My mind was racing. Why had the professor sped off? I did need to change my tire, and I was standing there wearing a fancy suit, shirt and tie, all made of silk. Was I safe? There's about $20,000 worth of furniture in the van. Is that safe? What to do? Once again, I trusted my better angels as I opened the back door of the van. Everything was covered up and I felt good about that. I felt nervous, but I knew that I needed help. I had to trust my gut that I'd be safe. Sure, I said, help would be great as I opened the back door. And right there were the spare tire, the tire jack and the wrench. They were always the last thing I packed, just in case. Car trouble could always happen on the road. As they changed the tire on this poorly lit, empty street, I checked my wallet. When they were done, I thanked them and told them that I only had a $100 bill. The young one said that that was enough. I replied that I still needed to get back to Indiana and needed some cash. By now I felt comfortable and had truly appreciated their help. My tires had been installed at a tire shop and it had taken all their strength to unlock the tire nuts. I was in my early 50s and there was no way I could have done that alone. The older man then suggested that I pull the van away from the middle of the road and park it and then follow them. After doing that, we then walked three or four blocks while I explained to them why I was in D.C. and where my accent came from. Soon we came to a small Chinese carryout with bars on all the windows and doors. It looked like an impregnable fortress. Maybe this was not a safe neighborhood after all. When we entered, there were about six other young black men inside, just seemingly hanging out. As I was nervously taking the scene in, the younger helper started repeating loudly, Change for a hundred! We need change for a hundred! I remember not feeling too safe at that moment. However, I did get five twenties, and as we walked back to the van, I gave them both $20. I thanked them profusely and gave them a few postcards each while they gave me the directions to I-70. I'm not proud of my internal dialogue that evening. I had been in America for just over 20 years at that point and realized 
that all the racist bigotry, fear-mongering, and judgments had affected me in ways I'm not proud of. I still struggle to understand the racism in this country and its persistence, how it's possible to fill for-profit prisons with young black men and no one bat an eye, how a police badge seems to be a license to kill black people. I wasn't judging these two young black men that night, but America had rubbed off on me and I watched myself becoming afraid for my safety. These two black men were angels. They saw a man in need of assistance and they came to my rescue in an act of human kindness. They didn't choose their skin color and white people shouldn't make them guilty for it. Black lives do matter. Five months later, my heart was broken for the country and for Janet Reno, as I saw her on television arriving in Columbine, Colorado. Two teenage boys had gone on a shooting spree, killing 13 fellow students and injuring 24 others before taking their own lives. Sadly, it was no surprise to be informed that both those boys were white. This has been a Sauna Sound Studio production with support from all the little bees up in the trees, folks who sneeze and bend their knees, with the cat's meow and the dog's bow wow in old time Indiana.